0: Luke 9:28 through 43. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy but when they became fully awake they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus Peter said to him, Master it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God
1: thank you Len I like to talk a lot about not a lot about but I like to mention Disney movies quite a bit in my uh, my messages y'all probably noticed this is a recurring thing and uh, a lot of that simply because we watch quite a few with our kids and uh Recently we pulled out one we hadn't seen in quite a while um, called Tangled. Maybe you all seen this one and uh, my kids seem to enjoy it rather much. But uh, there's a scene in this movie where a fugitive who's on the run from the king's guard because uh, he's stolen the crown. Somehow he snuck into the castle and stole this you know, crown filled with jewels and he's running, running out and he's getting into the woods and as he's into the woods, you know, horses are chasing him and all these guards are chasing him. He, he sees a wanted sign with his picture on it. And he looks at it for a minute. He stops and he sees the sign and looks at it and he says, They just can't get my nose right. And as you look at the fugitive and then back at the picture on the wanted sign, you gather that his nose was intentionally changed to make him look worse. Everything else was so perfect and so accurate and proportioned and just as it needed to be. And then here's this nose that's uh, not quite right. I guess maybe it was the king's way of poking fun at the fugitive or getting a little dig in or something. They distorted reality just a little bit to get their point across or to make them look like the good guys and this guy to look like the bad guy. Because this is a rather handsome fellow. With the the new nose on him, he was not so appealing. Um, Rarely, though, will you see a leader or a group of leaders do the opposite, right? Rarely will they reveal their own weaknesses. Right? They want to distort or expose the weaknesses of others oftentimes and portray themselves to their subjects as powerful or strong or without defect. Right? We see this all the time. In many cases, leaders actually spin maybe a little bit or a lot the truth in order to accomplish this. Or they int- introduce maybe completely false elements into their ad campaigns or speeches or press releases and so on, maybe to maintain the facade of strength or... You know, to avoid having to admit a mistake of some kind that they may have have made. So the changes that are made to real events are done so by the people in power sometimes to make people in power look good. And their opponents look really, really bad, right? We see this all the time. But when it comes to Jesus, the opposite is actually true. We see a person not seeking the glory of man, but simply seeking to be obedient to the calling which God had placed upon his life. When you read the biblical stories about Jesus Christ, they are so grounded in reality that you don't get the sense that the account was spun or altered. Right here in what is maybe one of the most glorious moments in all of Scripture regarding the Lord Jesus, we note that the disciples were doing what? Sleeping. Sleeping looking like buffoons once again. We see the Apostle Peter opening his mouth nice and wide and shoving his shoe right on in, right? Reality, not spin. Embarrassing facts are included in the story. Why? Because that's what happened. There's no move here to make everyone in the story look great or look glorious or look awesome. This is what happened. No positioning is being done here. No political aims being sought. No revisions or embellishments. Just the truth of this event up on the mountain. When we read the story of, of the Christ's transfiguration, as it's famously called, one of the amazing things we really, really begin to see is that Jesus was an unbelievably humble man. If you're God, right? Think about this with me for a moment. If you're God... Why not reveal your glory out on the steps of the temple courtyard one day in front of thousands of people, right? Just whip out the angels and raise the hand and say, here I am, right? Transfigure yourself up in front of everybody on the temple, right out front of the temple or something where thousands of people are gathered. Why not choose to have Moses and Elijah up with you in front of all these crowds and great numbers of people instead of over on some obscure mountain with just a few of your followers? Why not do that? Why not eliminate beyond the shadow of a doubt that this Jesus of Nazareth was not like any ordinary man? Because a part of Jesus' glory and the beauty of who He was was the fact that He did not do that. The fact that He was a humble man with a veiled glory. And also because just as E.M. Bounds, who is a clergyman and, and an author who lives back in the early 1900s said this, as we move into, into Lent, and trying to get us to really begin thinking about a lot of these things. He said this, All God's plans have the mark of the cross on them, and all His plans have death to self in them. When Jesus came to earth, every moment of His life was marked by the cross. Recognition, fame, man's approval and so on were not on the list of goals for Jesus. In a world where personal glory and fame is the most sought-after prize of all, we are shocked to find someone so deserving of it yet so reticent to receive it or to pursue it. As we saw a couple of weeks ago when Peter cut the ear off of the servant of the high priest, remember we talked about that very briefly, right? So, Judas has betrayed Jesus. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. All these people come out with clubs and, and, you know, torches and all this stuff, like treating Jesus like a convict or whatever. They get out there and Peter whips out his sword and cuts off the ear of the, the servant of the high priest. What does Jesus do? He heals the man and he rebukes Peter and he says, Put your sword back in its place. Do you not think that I could, I could appeal to my father and in an instant have not, have 12 legions of angels available to me? then he says this, how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? That Jesus must be betrayed and died on the cross. How could it be, right, if I were to do it this way or another way? Jesus had one main goal, and that was to seek and to save that which was lost. And the cross was the way he was doing it. Even right here in this passage where we get just a glimpse of Jesus' glory, where we see His greatness, just a moment of maybe what is to come when we're with Him one day, of who Jesus really is, we must come to grips with the fact that the cross is there. We must come to grips with the reality that you cannot follow Jesus any other way but on the Calvary Road. That is where Jesus went and that's where we're called to go. So if you look at the paragraph just before our passage today, I want you to do that if you have your Bible open and you want to follow along. Sorry, this thing keeps moving around on me. You see clearly in verses 22 through 24 there, right before our passage today. I can't get this thing right, I'm sorry. moves around on me too much. He says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. That's right before our passage today. Jesus knew that he came to die, and he knew that his followers must do the same. Even immediately following our passage too. Look on the back end of our passage, right? What do you see in verses 43 and uh, 44, if you read with me? And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, speaking maybe specifically in this instance of of his uh, delivering or casting out this demon of this young boy, they were marveling. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, as if to sort of say, it's not about that stuff, guys. He said to them, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. So he kind of pulls him in and he says, listen, don't get caught up in all this stuff. Though this stuff is good, don't miss the point. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So our passage today is sandwiched in between these two moments when Jesus conveys in no uncertain terms that he's going to be betrayed by men and die. Maybe Luke is trying to shed some light, right, on the meaning of, all, of this moment on the on the mountaintop where Jesus is transfigured there with the disciples. Maybe he's trying to say, "Hey, this is a glorious moment and a great moment, and all the light and all the glory of God and all that there—that's awesome stuff. But don't miss what's going on here. Don't miss what we what the core of what's happening here, the message that Jesus wants to convey to us." That's what I want to do now is try to unpack a little bit of this for you as we, as we go through the passage. So let's take a little bit of a deeper look and see what treasures might be here in this very interesting passage or text for us this morning. But right away, as we begin to get into our passage, what do we see? We see some very interesting things happening, do we not? While they were praying, the text says what? The appearance of Jesus' face was altered uh, with, or it changed and His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning, it says. This is... Kind of otherworldly sort of stuff, ethereal kind of stuff, like what's, what's this all about, right? Literally, Luke writes in the original, in the original Greek it says, the appearance of his face was other. Matthew, in his account of the transfiguration, writes that Jesus' face shone as the sun. And while we can't really imagine what is going on here, it's hard to really understand this, is it not? One scholar puts it this way, and he puts it, Pretty well, I think. He says, The point of these descriptions is that Jesus was physically transformed into a radiant figure whose brilliance extended even to his clothes. So somehow Jesus is altered in this supernatural, glorious way that's hard for us to really imagine or comprehend. And even his clothes were shining radiantly as this happened. Well, if you're a reader of the Old Testament, right? which hopefully many of you in here are. I've heard a lot of the stories in the Old Testament. You can't but help maybe draw comparisons between this event and the one I mentioned to the children a minute ago, right? In the children's message where Moses is up on the mountaintop. And what happens? He gets those tablets that second time. It comes down and his face is shining like the sun, right? Whether or not Luke intends there to be a connection between this event and that one, I don't know. It's not, real entire, it's not entirely clear, but we do find in verse 30 what happens. Two figures appear right there with the Lord Jesus. And who's one of them? Moses. It says in verse 32, men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They too seem to be maybe shining in some way in glorious splendor, it says. What is the significance of Moses and Elijah appearing here with Jesus? What's the point? That why did all of this happen? Well, one seasoned pastor and, and writer puts it this way, and again, he puts it so well, I'm just going to read his uh, sort of little piece on this that I think puts it very well. He says, It was no accident that Moses and Elijah were the men who appeared to Jesus because together they represent the entire Old Testament. Moses was the hero of the Exodus, the man who led Israel out of Egypt. He was famous for giving God's people the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on stone tablets and brought down from the mountain. Moses stood for the law. Elijah stood for the prophets. After Moses, moses he was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Elijah raised the dead. He shut the rain up in heaven as judgment for Israel's sin for over three years. He prayed down fire to defeat the prophets of Baal. He didn't even die but was carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire. God promised, furthermore, that one day Elijah would return. And people thought that Jesus was this Elijah. Did, do you all remember those passages? Are you, are, the, are you Elijah? People would ask him. Therefore, people looked to him as their once and future prophet. In those days, people referred to the Old Testament as the Law and the Prophets, or sometimes as the Law the Prophets and the Writings. And together, Moses and Elijah stood for the whole thing. They represented all that God had done before and revealed himself um, before in the Old Testament. So they represented all of the Old Testament. But what's the connection with Jesus here? We've been saying this for quite a while. You've heard me say this a thousand times. So it's not going to be new, at least for you guys, this last couple of years with me. The implication seems to be that Jesus came to fulfill the whole Old Testament. The law and the prophets. That he was the arrival of everything promised in the ancient scriptures. But let's keep this straight, okay? Let me give you a little illustration that will help you keep, the, keep it straight. It's something I don't think that Luke is doing here. Luke, I don't think, is lining up kind of like his all-star crew here, right? He's not giving you a snapshot of God's Hall of Fame or something like that, okay? So earlier this year, those of you who are sports buffs, and I saw the, the voting go on for the, um, the Baseball Hall of Fame and King Griffey Jr. and Mike Piazza were elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And this was special this year because Griffey Jr. received the highest percentage of votes in history. It's like over 99% of, uh, of folks, I guess, who filled out the ballots or whatever, I don't know exactly how the process works, voted Griffey in. You have to get 75%, I think, or higher to get in to the Hall of Fame. But Luke is not trying to say to us, okay, look, Jesus is it's like a Griffey Jr. here, right right alongside of Elijah and right alongside of Moses. He's going to be on, in, on the wall in God's spiritual hall of fame or something, so you better be sure to vote for him when the time comes. Right? I don't think Luke is, is doing it in that kind of way. It's not like that. Luke is not comparing Jesus to these men. Why not? Why do you suggest so? Well, I think if you look at the next verse, verse 31, we begin to see that, that something else is going on here, okay? It says this They spoke about his departure when he was about to bring to fulfillment, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So Moses. And Elijah are sitting there. They're talking with Jesus. They're not just hanging out. They didn't pull out the selfie stick, right, and say, "Hey, Jesus, let's get one real quick, brother, right? Let's come over here in front of this olive tree, and you know that'll look real good. Have you uh, in the picture here with me, and hanging on my wall up in up in heaven or whatever? They're not. It's not that sort of thing, right? It's not. They're not building a political alliance or connection or something like that. There's something much more going on here, right? They're having a discussion, and we gather that it's significant, right? But what on earth are they talking about? Well, maybe you've pondered, you've asked yourself the question if I, could be, if I could have a moment with anyone in history, who would it be? Maybe you've asked yourself this question, right? Would it be, you know, George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or you know, St. Augustine or I don't know who one of your heroes might be or a Babe Ruth or somebody like that? Maybe there's some big figure or maybe it's a Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber. God forbid. Um, <laughs> Maybe those are one of the people you want to get some time with, right? Maybe you've pondered. Maybe you've imagined. Um, you've got this, this person that you sort of imagine. Maybe it's Jesus. I, I hope for some of you it would be Jesus maybe. You had this moment and um, you've got to pick a topic. You've got a few minutes, right, in person with this, with this individual and you've got to pick a topic. What do you choose? What do you pick? Who is it and what do you choose? Well, Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus and they're talking about His departure. His departure. Of all the things, that is what is mentioned. Maybe they had a longer discussion. Maybe there was other topics. I don't know. But this is the one that we know about. This is the one that's mentioned. Why this one? And what is it referring to? Well, the Greek word here is very uncommon. Okay, and I'm going to try and open this up a little bit for us. Sometimes the Greek word here is used to refer to someone's death. So if you were to flip over to Second Peter chapter 1, verse 15, you'd read this. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure... You will always be able to remember these things. Peter's referring to his death. To his death. So the word that's used here in Luke 9 is an uncommon word, sometimes used of one's death. But there's a more straightforward Greek term, a much more common Greek term, that Luke could have used for death. One that is used well over a hundred times, actually, in the New Testament, And mostly of the death of Jesus. Why does Luke not use that one? Why does he use this more uncommon one? He chooses a very rare one. And think about this. Luke chooses this very rare word to convey what was happening in his discussion with Moses and Elijah. That's the context. He's there with Moses and Elijah. Well, the Greek word that that Luke uses here for departure, interestingly, is the word Exodus. Coincidence that in this glorious moment when Jesus is talking on the mountaintop with Moses, the great deliverer out of bondage to Egypt, the one who led them through the wilderness into the promised land in an event known as the Exodus, that the Greek word used here is Exodus. It would be hard to fathom that this is a mere coincidence. Moses and Elijah wanted to know about this greater exodus that was about to be accomplished, as our text says, in Jerusalem, which was where Jesus was crucified. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, these men are referring to Jesus' death on the cross. Everything here points in that direction. As we've seen from Jesus' own words right before this event and right after this event, He's warning His disciples, I'm going to die, guys. I'm going to be, I'm going to be betrayed. The Son of Man's going to be delivered. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. Moses and Elijah are eager to know about these things that are about to happen. Things that both of their ministries long ago, hundreds and hundreds of years before, foreshadowed, they wanted to know about this great deliverance that Jesus was about to solidify in His departure. We who live in the present day, right, have the benefit of knowing the end of the story. We know that this deliverance was not a deliverance from an earthly dictator, right? It wasn't a deliverance from just the hand of an evil earthly dictator, but a deliverance from sin and guilt. It was to be a deliverance from the oppression of sin and guilt and shame. Maybe the story following this one, and with the the boy there, the child who's, who's demon possessed, and Jesus comes in and casts him out. Where you see the disciples once again failing and struggling to do this, and Jesus coming in and say, "Oh, faithless generation," then He does it for me, completes the task, and He casts out the demon. He delivers this young boy. Maybe that is a picture of our failure and the power of Jesus' deliverance, a deliverance that would open the way to a newer and greater and more enduring promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land without suffering. A land not ruled by an evil overlord which enslaved people with hard labor and a whip like the guy in Egypt. But one that was ruled by a humble servant king who laid down his life for his subjects. Luke is not saying that Jesus is just like Moses and Elijah. It should be clear. He's saying that the lives of Moses and Elijah only make sense in the light of Jesus Christ. Their lives pointed to the great coming one, the Messiah, this Jesus. But what comes before spring? And this is where it's going to hit home for us, I think. What comes before spring? Fall and winter, right? I was talking with someone recently here at the church, um, who I think um, was right when he suggested to me that maybe the spring and summers here in Vermont are what they are. They're so amazing and so lush and so rich and dense and fruitful because the winter is so harsh. Generally, this year, obviously, not so much. Maybe God is teaching us something through nature's patterns and seasons. Maybe the winter must come first. Moses and the Israelites, after their liberation from Egypt, think about this with me, again, Moses and Elijah here in the passage, after their liberation from Egypt, still had to do what? They had to go through the desert. They had to go through the wilderness. For 40 years they wandered in part because of their disobedience, but also arguably in part to prepare them for the glory of the promised land. Before the promised land came the wilderness. And the same for Elijah. Before Elijah mightily defeated the prophets of Baal, if you go back, please do, if you haven't read any of these stories, go home and read about, uh, read about the powerful ministry of Elijah. Okay, you can find him if you've got a Bible with the concordance in the back flip and look for Elijah. He's all over the place. I think it's in like 1st and 2nd Kings where you'll find a lot about Elijah. But before Elijah had mightily defeated Right, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in this amazing display, or before Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire, right, without seeing death. He lived outside of Israel for a fairly long time, during a severe drought in Sidon, which was the homeland of evil Queen Jezebel, right? In a place of Baal worshippers in Lebanon. Right? Elijah knew the wilderness. He knew the droughts. He knew what it was like to live in a place uh, that was not so uh, welcoming to people like him. Well, Peter, here in our text, so badly longs, I think, for this moment not to end, that in a moment of weakness and ignorance, Peter suggests in verse 33, if you notice in your, in your Bible there, that they should make three tents. I think it says um, shelters in some translations, tents, or even tabernacles in the, in the Greek for them. Maybe these would have been like the little tents that the Israelites set up for the Feast of Tabernacles. Or maybe he was thinking of the tabernacle that Jesus set up in the wilderness where God's glory rested when the people were wandering around in the desert. But whatever Peter meant, Luke informs us this was not a good response. Right? He says that Peter didn't know what he was doing. Maybe Peter just didn't want the glory to end, like us, right? Maybe he just wanted to keep the mountaintop experience going. And he he says to Jesus, Let's set up some tents. Let let this be a permanent thing, God. He wanted maybe this to be a shrine of sorts. Maybe to set up another little mini temple or, or some kind of a shrine where people could come and see this Jesus and see His glory here. The problem with that, though, was that this was not what Jesus came to do, was it? In another instance in the life of Christ where Peter, once again, is kind of in the middle of inserting his foot in his mouth, um, which we all do this. I'm not singling Peter out. Um, but it just shows us that even the greatest of men that, that God uses in mighty ways who are flawed and imperfect but in another instance in the life of Christ when Jesus tells his disciples that he must die in Jerusalem and be raised, Peter pulls Jesus aside. You know, we think, how dare he, right? He pulls Jesus, Jesus aside and he says, far be it, Lord, that you should die, that this should happen to you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ouch, right? Jesus had not come to erect a shrine and establish His glorious kingdom in all its fullness yet. The kingdom of God would no longer be limited as it was in the Old Testament to a particular time and place. It would not be confined to one spot on some mountain. What Jesus had in mind was so much bigger than all of that, right? Peter wanted to limit it. Put it right here. But more importantly, and this is the big point, that Jesus once again had come To die. Jesus had set His face like flint to the cross and there He was going no matter what. I'm going to do this, Jesus had determined. Before the coming of eternal glory, before that spring and that summer of His resurrection and the eternal kingdom which we know is coming, Jesus would go the way of the cross and He calls all of us to follow Him there. Before the crown comes the cross, right? You've probably heard it that way before. I've quoted this in another sermon, but I'm going to quote it again because it's just so appropriate. Um, It's a poem by Amy Carmichael that I think fits right in with what God is saying to us this morning. Amy Carmichael is um, maybe more so Megan, but definitely one of me and Megan's heroes, and we named our second daughter after her, um, Amma, which was uh, the word mother. In the Indian language, the the people she served in India as a missionary uh, called her, um, Emma, which, and Tamil, which meant mother. But she writes this. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die. In rent, by ravening beasts that compassed me I swooned, hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who hast no wound or scar? This is the way. It's the hard way. But it's the good way, the way through the deep and the often dark forest of self-denial, through the fire and through the water, and through hardship. But it's the way that leads out to a broad place, a place of blessing, a good place, a place of eternal life in Jesus Christ. So as we approach Lent, uh, I want you to ponder one idea with me. This is the idea I was trying, fumbling through it to convey to, to the children and to you this morning. Maybe what the world has sold to us is a lie. Maybe the mantra that we hear everywhere on television and in music and on the radio and out in the streets here and with our friends and everywhere, that real satisfying life can only be found if you are true to yourself and pursue your dreams and your desires and your wants and your goals and your passions and be the person that you want to be maybe that's a lie maybe in fact the exact opposite is true maybe life is not found in self or in the pretty things but in denying self In running a thousand miles an hour away from your natural inclinations and desires and dreams and embracing God's vision for your life. A life of service and devotion, not to yourself, but to others, to God and to others. A life committed to putting yourself second or even last in many cases. Why do I say this? Because this was the way that Jesus chose. Even in this moment of glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, what is the topic of conversation? I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to humble myself. It's not about all this glory. Eventually that's coming and it will be all about that. But right now it's the way of the cross. This was the way Jesus chose, and he shows us that this is the way to life, to real and enduring satisfaction. Looking away from self, looking up to God, embracing the cross, carrying your cross and following after Jesus. So I plead with you this morning, don't listen to the lie of the world. Listen to the voice of the Father here in this text. What's it say right there? It says the clouds came round and they got anxious, right? What's happening? Probably like Moses up on the mountain, the people, when the Mount Sinai was trembling and they was given the law, right? What's it say? The Father says, this is my chosen one. Listen to Him. In other words, Peter, stop talking so much, right? Stop presenting your own ideas and listen to the Lord. Listen to what my son has to say. So stop listening to the lies and listen to the son, what he says. And he says, take up your cross and follow me and you will have life.